0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to those of you joining us from Calvary, Quakertown. It's good to have you on this beautiful summer. Mo- oh, that was a different weekend. Well, it's great to have you anyway, and uh, you come and join us on the morning that we're concluding our series that we're calling The New Normal. And if you remember, over the last few weeks, this series was all about the church, We started by looking at some principles and then we moved into some illustrations or practices as to how those principles got worked out. And one of the things that you've heard every week is that the church is never changing and ever changing. And we have to keep that in mind because as we move toward the new normal, some things are not gonna change and other things are gonna change. The church is ever changing and never changing. Well, whenever we conclude a series, people always say to me, Charles, it's help you if you just do a little bit of a review. I tend to not like that, but since I got that feedback, let's do a little bit of a review. We started this series a number of weeks ago by looking at Jesus' promise in Matthew 16. And here's what he said, I will build my church. And I don't know about you, but that's great news. Jesus says, in spite of opposition, in spite of obstacles, I will build my church and it will be completed. We also looked at a verse from the Old Testament that describes for us the means of Jesus building the church. There we read in Zechariah, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by Jesus' spirit. And so it's by the means of the Holy Spirit that the church is being built. And then we looked at a few verses from Colossians and there we said, well, how does the spirit do that? Well, the spirit does that by transforming people. And we looked at five words from chapter one to talk about that internal transformation. We've been qualified and rescued, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven, those internal qualities. But then in Colossians chapter three, we saw that that internal transformation brings about external change of putting off and putting on. And then we looked at a a verse from 1 Peter, or a concept there, that actually says we are being built together. We're transformed and changed inside out, not to live isolated, separate lives, but to be built together into a community. The metaphor there is a spiritual house. Well, we move from those principles to then look at the book of Acts in the early church to see how they were living out the principles. And we started by looking at Acts chapter one and two, and we actually saw the first few of those principles right in living color. We've talked about up and down. Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes down. There it is, the first two principles lived out before us in Acts chapter one and two. And then in the end of chapter two, we see the in and out focus. As we connect with God and are impacted by him, he sends us to connect with others and impact them up and down, in and out, the rhythms of how the church gets built. And then last week, we actually looked at a problem that occurs. And the problem that occurs comes about because of growth. There was a crisis in care. There was a big division in the church. Some of the Greek Jews and some of the Hebrew Jews kind of were at disagreement, a division was beginning to occur. How does that get resolved? Well, you can expect when you take people that are different, put them together in the community, Just because they're Christians now doesn't mean all the problems go away. The problem is solved as people live out the principles. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to warn you right up front, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, which means we could be here a really long time. I've been promised an extra snack if I finish semi on time, all right? Uh, And I'm going to call the message Community of Difference. Now, that's not a misspelling. I don't mean difference with a C right before the S. Difference. Again, the idea is lots of different people and different kinds of people knit together into a community. If you think the possibility of division was great because of the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews in Acts chapter 6, you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's talk about the difference that appears in Acts chapter 16. Well, we're going to walk through a what Luke records for us here in Acts. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, your iPad, whatever you use, I'm gonna read a big hunk of the chapter just to kind of remind us of, of what's going on and how Luke's putting it together. Paul is on a missionary journey. He went on a number of those, traveling around, introducing towns and individuals, communities to the gospel, the difference that Jesus makes. And lo and behold, he receives a vision that is sometimes called the Macedonian vision. So Paul's kind of a, you know, he's in a dream state or he sees a vision and he sees a man in Macedonia saying, come on over here, Paul, come on over here. And so Paul takes that as guidance from God and so he changes his plans a little bit and he heads toward Macedonia. Now the big difference there is he moves from Asia to Europe, right? Macedonia, come on over here, come on over here. That's gonna become important in just a few minutes. So if you would, look at verse nine. They arrive in Philippi. We've got a whole book in the Bible, right? A letter to the Philippians. This is the beginning of that church that Paul years later will write a letter to. So follow along. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to stay at her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once again, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way of salvation. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaking. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up when he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. "'The jailer called for lights, "'rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. "'He then brought them out and asked, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' "'They replied, "'Believe in the Lord Jesus "'and you will be saved, you and your household.' "'Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him "'and to the others in his house. "'At that hour of the night, the jailer took them "'and washed their wounds, "'and immediately he and his household were baptized. "'The jailer brought them into his house "'and set a meal before them. "'He was filled with joy because he had come "'to believe in God.' he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison and now they wanna get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. A community of difference. Luke records for us um, interactions and transformation of three individuals. I wanna say a a word or two about each of the three. The first, we meet um, Lydia. Now, Lydia, from what we read, was a very wealthy woman. She owned a purple dyeing business, and if you know anything about purple, right, purple is what the royals wore, and that was true traditionally because purple dye was very, very expensive. I believe somehow back then it was made from something with seashells. You had to collect a whole bunch of seashells, get a little bit of purple out. And so very little purple with lots and lots of seashells. You had to be super wealthy, even beyond wealthy. You had to have the income of a tax system behind you to be able to purchase purple cloth. Incredibly wealthy. Lydia owns the purple dyeing business. She's incredibly wealthy. She runs, we know she's wealthy because she has a house at at the end of the chapter, large enough for the little church to come and meet in. So Lydia is wealthy, but also with this purple dyeing business, she's pretty well connected, don't you think? If it's only the super wealthy and the royals that have the ability to buy purple and you're the one that sells purple, that means on her cell phone she has all the names of the super wealthy and all the leaders of the world. They're on her phone. She can connect with them. She's networked beyond anything we could imagine. And you know what's really amazing to me? Not that she's wealthy, not that she owns that purple dyeing business, not that she's well-connected. What really amazes me is she's a God-worshipper. Isn't it interesting that, have you ever noticed that people that seem to have a whole lot of the world's goods and can live in comfort often aren't that interested in God? It's often people that are in touch with their need, in touch with their predicament. They're the ones that are seeking... But here's Lydia, kind of like the rich young ruler. He has everything, but something's missing. He goes to Jesus. Here's Lydia, seemingly having the whole world, knowing something's missing. She goes to a prayer meeting where the Old Testament, the Hebrew God, is being discussed. They're kind of reading, praying, thinking about all the promises from the Old Testament. Now, you may have never thought about this before. I thought a number of times this week. You ever wonder if, um, if prayer really works? And you know, sometimes we pray about things and nothing really changes. Sometimes we pray about something and things change, but then what we, well, was it, our prayer that changed that? Just kind of circumstances how's that work? But do you ever think of it this way? Remember at the beginning I said, Paul is on this missionary journey, trying to find where to go in Asia. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia. Come on over here, come on over here. You ever think about it like this? Maybe Paul got that call Because of Lydia's prayer. Maybe at the prayer meeting, Lydia's saying, hey, I'm searching for something here. I have everything the world has to offer. Something's still missing. God, is there something? I'm here reading the Old Testament. I'm reading about Abraham and Moses and David. And I don't seem to have what they have. God, if you're real. And all of a sudden, Paul gets a vision to come to Macedonia. Just maybe. Just maybe that was an answer to a small prayer meeting's prayer or one woman's prayer to find out if this was real so paul shows up goes out to the gathering and uh, you ever wonder uh, what they were studying well my guess is since they have the old testament they're learning about abraham right and one of the promises about abraham goes something like this all the world will be blessed through your seed maybe they're saying well who's that seed how does that work maybe the women are discussing that or maybe they heard about Moses and Moses gives the Ten Commandments. And maybe they had, you know, a little small group study on the Ten Commandments. And at the end of each week, they're saying, but I can't do that. I fall far short of that. I'm in a world of trouble. But then they also realized Moses instituted the sacrificial system where if you blow it and you don't keep the commands, there's kind of a way for you to be forgiven, even though you screwed up. How does that, like animals and In my mind's eye, Paul is salivating, right? What have you ladies been studying? Well, we're learning about Abraham and the whole world's going to be blessed through his descendant. We don't know who that is. Then we learned about these 10 commandments and we we can't keep any of them. And then this weird sacrificial system where you bring your animal to the temple and you go through this drum, then the animal dies and you're forgiven. And Paul's probably smiling and saying, let me tell you the rest of the story. And he explains how Jesus is the point and the purpose and Lydia's eyes are open. God opens her heart. She realizes Jesus is the point and purpose, becomes a Christian, is baptized, and shows hospitality to Paul and his partners. That's wonderful, isn't it? But Luke's not done. He then introduces us to the second character. Um, Keep this in mind. The opposite of Lydia, right? We then meet a slave girl. She's demonized. In fact, literally it says she has a spirit of a python. Python was, you know, the the snake that guarded the temple of Apollos, right? Kind of this weird deal. And she tells fortunes. And she must have been good at it because she's making a whole lot of money uh, for her owners. Lydia's rich. She's poor. She's so poor she doesn't even own herself. Lydia is religious, seeking God. The slave girl is demonized. Lydia is well-networked. This girl is exploited and oppressed. You can't get more opposite to Lydia. And then she starts following Paul and the gang around, right? And uh, I know we read it and say, oh my goodness, look, she speaks truth. These men are witnesses of the most high God. They're here to tell you about salvation. I tell you what, after a couple of days of that, that would get annoying at best, wouldn't it? Even though it's true. Yeah, but you've got to understand, the words are literally true But in that context, nobody would have understood the truth of it. Here's what they're gonna hear. These men are witnesses. These These men are telling us about the most, who's the most high God? Zeus, Apollo, some other God. They're not thinking the God of the Bible, right? They're pagans. They don't know much about the Old Testament. And they're here to tell you about salvation. What's salvation in their context? Being healed from your illness, becoming wealthy, Health and wealth must have been salvation. We wanna read our theology into what the slave girl's saying. I think Paul's saying, if you understand what she's saying in that context, that's false advertising. I'm not here to tell you about a pagan God, and I'm not here to tell you how all your problems in this world will be solved. I'm here to tell you about the real God. False advertising, not true. We can't read what we think back into what was probably going on. Paul exercises the demon. Well, her owners now freak out, right? I mean, it's one thing when the gospel changes and forgives sin. It's another thing when it messes with your income, right, and your cash flow. These guys are really ticked off. They get Paul and Silas, bring them before the magistrates, have them beaten and thrown into prison. Beaten with sticks, rods, right? You feel like doing that this afternoon? Kind of like watching a Phillies bullpen, right? Um, Yeah beaten with rot, thrown into, what? And it's in the prison where Luke introduces us to the third character, the jailer. Now, can I just uh, let you in on a, a Charles hypothesis? I think there were lots of converts in Philippi. I don't think there were only three, and I don't think they necessarily happened in this order. I think that what Luke is doing is he's drawing a continuum. And he says, let me tell you about the really wealthy, well-connected, humble end of the continuum. That's Lydia. Let me tell you about the other end of the continuum. Poverty-stricken, oppressed, exploited end of the continuum. And then I want to tell you about somebody right in the middle. That's the blue-collar jailer. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was settled often by lots of ex military Now, back then, they didn't have pensions and they didn't have all these, you know, this um, network or safety net for people. If you did a really good job in the military, you got a cushy civil service job. That's what you got. Being a prison guard in Philippi, a Roman, that was a cushy civil service job. This guy had been probably a decorated, very successful military person. He's given not a pension. He's given a cushy civil service job, guarding prisoners. How much much effort is that going to take, right? Little did he know. What do you think about this guy? He's not wealthy. He's not poor. He's not humble and religious. He's not demonized. He's probably in the middle, right? My guess is he's, he's proud, proud of his own record, maybe a little pompous. He's indifferent to religion. He's seen too many people die. Many of them at the end of his sword. He saw friends die, people standing next to him on the lines. He's hardened, he's indifferent. He's living above all the fray, trying to drown out the pain the best way he can. Paul's beaten, he has him thrown in stocks. Then in the darkness of the night, a major earthquake occurs. And when the earthquake occurs, something amazing happens. He hears Paul and Silas singing hymns from the inner prison cell. My guess is he had heard lots of things being yelled from the inner prison cell. Most of them were not hymns praising God, and the name of God would have been used very differently than these hymns are using God's name. And his mind's kind of, What? A major earthquake. The doors fly open. Now remember, he's a pompous, proud civil servant. He recognizes the prison doors are open. If the prisoners escape, he's going to be humiliated and executed. He can do that by himself. Rather than go through the humiliation, he can take his life pain as, as pain free as he can. A lot. He's not going to be, he's not going to torture himself the way he's going to if he's executed. He takes out his sword. He's ready to kill himself. After all, if the prisoners go out, he loses his life. But then he hears from the cell, Paul, you hey, 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 don't do it, we're all here, I kept everybody here for you. He comes in with the lights, and all the prisoners are still there. And he says, "Uh, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's another example. That's the right question, but don't import all of your church theology into the guy's question. The, the, the jailer is not saying, hey, listening to you guys sing and experiencing the earthquake. For the first time in my life, I realize I am a wretched sinner separated from, by God by millions of miles. And somehow Jesus, he does not think that. What's his question? Can you guys help me get out of this mess? That's the question. I'm in a world of trouble here. Can you guys help me? Get me out of the mess. That's the question. What does Paul do? Paul answers the real question under his question. He speaks to his felt need of experiencing an earthquake, having these guys sing hymns, recognizing he's going to be in trouble because of what happened. Can you get me out of the mess? Paul says, I can get you out of the real mess. I can get you out of the mess of the distance between you and the holy God that exists. He explains the gospel. This guy and his family become Christians. And they're baptized too. See, you see what Luke's doing? He kind of gives us a continuum. Super wealthy, humble, kind of act together moral. Dirt poor, demonized, exploited, oppressed. And somebody right in the middle. Indifferent, pompous, proud, trying to dull the pain whatever way they can. And Paul says, the church is for everybody on that continuum. He gives us the two extremes and right in the middle. Well, we all fall on that continuum somewhere too, don't we? Let me ask. give you three lessons, a collection of lessons quickly. Here's the first one. The gospel's for everybody. Wealthy CEOs that are connected and have the rich and famous on their cell phones, they need the gospel. Those that are dirt poor, oppressed, and exploited, they need the gospel. And blue-collar guys and white-collar guys, somewhere in the middle of the continuum, they all need the gospel. Everybody needs the gospel. You know, we live in a world in which um, our culture says to us, I don't know what you need and you don't know what I need, but maybe you go on a search for what you find and I'll celebrate when you find what you want. And when you find what you want, I'll be happy for you too. And you'll be happy from, the Bible says, yeah, we're all on a search, but we all need the same thing. There may be different twists and turns in the road, but the ultimate destination needs to be the same for every one of us. We all need the same thing. That's what the Bible says. But maybe the uh, bigger lesson of the chapter is that the gospel causes community, causes community. I love the last verse of the chapter. Here's what it says, verse 40. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, now remember, they're beaten, right, to a bloody pope. They've been in the stocks. Their muscles are kind of aching, right? They're released from the prison. They are escorted out. They go to Lydia's house where they were staying, and they met with the brothers and sisters there. Encouraged them. Then they left. I don't know everybody that was there, but based on the chapter, can I mention a few? Lydia was there. It was her house. I wouldn't let this group of people come to my house without me being there. So Lydia's there. Paul and Silas are there. They were the ones in prison. I suspect the slave girl's there. She had probably never visited Lydia's house before. Just guess it. She's at Lydia's house as a welcome guest. The jailer and his family are there. And probably some other brothers and sisters. Who's at Lydia's house? A collection of difference. They had never rubbed shoulders together. They had never gone for coffee together. That group of people could not be a community apart from the gospel. The gospel causes community, brings difference together into a group. That doesn't mean we're all alike. That doesn't mean all of a sudden we like all the same stuff. It means that what we have in common supersedes what we don't have in common. They're a community. You know, our prayer is as elders, staff, we want Calvary to be a community of difference where people at different ends at a socioeconomic scale and the educational scale and the ethnic scale. We want everybody to be welcome because diversity shows the unity that the gospel brings better than unanimity ever can. A community of difference. And one last lesson. You have to kind of get this from the context. The gospel propels us into mission. Acts 16 is not the end of the book. It goes on for chapter after chapter. It's this community that now is sent. So here we have our mission, our values. As this community connects with God and is impacted by him, they are sent to connect with others and impact them. And that's what we see at the beginning and throughout the rest of the book of Acts. How did Acts begin? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts 16 is just one step along that way. Well, that's our mission. That's our desire. That's our prayer, to be a community built by Jesus, impacted by his spirit, transformed by what he does, and that impact and connection then propels us to mission, to go connect and impact others. We have lots of opportunities to do that. We've got a great one uh, next Sunday morning. Invite people with you to connect and reconnect. Invite people, you connect with them, to your house, to barbecues, all those different things we've talked about. Let's make summer 2021 a summer of connection as we live out the principles that we've been talking about for a number of weeks now, just like the church in Acts did. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for this amazing, miraculous illustration of what the church is, should be, and can be. Lord, we see every one of the principles that we've looked at for five weeks lived out in this community. And Lord, I pray that we would see each of the principles lived out in Calvary community as we become a living illustration of those principles lived out, impacting others, as we connect and impact with you. We pray in the name of Jesus who makes that possible. Amen.